0: the old testament bad leaders proved to be a curse to god's people jeroboam we read and here i quote made israel to sin and this resulted on god's judgment on the northern tribes manasseh and again i quote made the people of judah sin and this led to god's judgment on the southern tribe and on the other hand godly leaders are a blessing In Joshua 24 and verse 31, we read that the people of Israel followed the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived Joshua. And this is true not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Bad leaders, they bring God's curse on a people. In Matthew 23, Jesus denounces Pharisees as hypocrites, blind guides, fools, and even offspring of vipers. And it's right after these denunciations of these bad leaders that in the end of the chapter, Jesus predicts the outcome of their leadership, the terrible destruction that was going to come on Jerusalem. But again, godly leaders are a blessing on a congregation. Verse Peter chapter 5 and verse 3 portrays godly elders as examples to the flock. And such leaders, they build the saints up, they protect the flock from those that would prey upon the sheep. Now, this afternoon, it's my desire to set before you a description of the that the Bible gives of this office. And actually, we're going to just begin in the subject of giving this description. And as we seek the Lord's will in this matter, it's vital that we have a clear idea of what we're looking for. And so before we get to the individual qualifications, we need to have a picture of what this office is all about. If you were part of a personnel department of some company, and you are responsible for hiring new employees, it would be incumbent upon you to know something about the positions you are trying to fulfill. Let's say you needed somebody uh, who would be the foreman of a large group of machinists in a company. And he would need to have a working knowledge of the machinery in your plant. He would need to have expertise in troubleshooting. And he would also have to know how to manage a crew. He would have to have people skills. And it would be not enough, you see, that this man would be somebody that just came from a construction company, and he was just a gopher. Or maybe he was like the guys that I first worked with. If a mistake would be made, they would say, well, can't see it from my house. And they would go on and just cover up the mistake. Well, you wouldn't want somebody that's a machinist with something that requires a 1,000th inch tolerance to be able to say, well, can't see it from my house. He has to be somebody that knows precisely how to do that job. And likewise, in the church, it's exceedingly important that we know what we are looking for. So before we come to the qualifications that are given in the New Testament for this office, we're going to devote our first two or three studies to a description of this office. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we find no formal definition of the office of elder, and nor is there any formal description of this office. But instead, we are given throughout the, the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, pictures that describe a relationship between the elders and the people that God has them serve. And the New Testament, it gives us a picture of this office in two different ways. It gives us a picture, yes, by listing qualifications, but also it uses word pictures describing the relationship between an elder and the people. This afternoon, we're going to begin to look at eight such pictures. We're not going to get very far in this. We uh, hope to get through two or three of these uh, word pictures that are found in the New Testament. And one of the things that I want you to notice as we go through this survey of many passages of Scripture that there are basically two functions that keep on coming out. And no matter what picture you're looking at, there's the function of ruling and there's the function of teaching. These are the two main functions that an elder or a bishop uh, fulfills in the Church of Christ. Now the first picture that we want to look at, and you have in outlines, therefore, we're going to follow this order. We have, first of all, the relationship between elders and a clan or a town. Now, the term elders is the most common word that's used in Scripture for this office. The basic meaning of elder is just what it sounds like. It's somebody that's older. And among the Jews, as well as other Mideastern nations, men that were advanced in age were commonly selected to fill positions of dignity and authority because they were supposed to have the kind of wisdom and gravity that comes with experience. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, he is said to be not a novice. And why is this? It's because, as we're going to see, an elder's primary tasks are teaching and ruling. And to teach and to rule, you need wisdom. And wisdom usually comes with maturity and with age. And the primary concern of the New Testament is not so much just the number of years that you've been here upon earth, but it's the issue of spiritual maturity that's being looked for. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, 1 Timothy 4.12. And so he was a young man comparatively, and yet he was an elder, and he was not to be despised on account of his comparative youth in this office. It's possible for a man to be comparatively young and yet to have wisdom, experience, and gravity and authority that's necessary for the office. And so it would seem, however, that there's at least a few years of maturity as an adult before a man could ever be recognized as an elder. It's hard to imagine a 16-year-old that hasn't started to shave as being one that you would call an elder in the church. Now, first of all, I want to just Give the background of this word elder in the Old Testament. It's very important until we catch this. Because in the Old Testament, there are 120 references to elders. And it cannot have failed to provide a pattern for the use of the word in the New Testament. In many places, and by the way, as we go through this, I want you to be thinking, and I'm going to ask you, this is going to be a little bit more like a classroom than a sermon, I'm going to ask you, as we go through these descriptions, what does this suggest in terms of what we look for when we look for an elder? But in many places, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word presbyteros, or presbus, the words translated elder, it simply signifies somebody that's older or of greater age. But in time, it also came to refer to men of maturity and stature in a community to whom the community would look for for leadership and wisdom and guidance. I want to begin by having you turn with me to Exodus chapter three. Here is the very first mention of elders. There's no explicit description of the beginning of the use of the word in this sense of elders, but it does give us, nevertheless, a first snapshot of what this eldership is all about. Notice what we read here in Exodus 3, beginning with verse 16. God says to Moses, Go and gather the elders. Here's the first reference. The elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so in this place, Moses is to gather the elders of Israel And he's to let them know that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is about to bring them out. And then we read in verse 18. Then they will heed your voice. These elders will heed your voice. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So these elders of Israel are first given some information. They're told what God says. They were to receive God's word. And then what were they to do? They were to go with Moses and they were to deliver God's word. They were to say this is, they were to back Moses up. This is what God is saying to his people. And there's no idea, you see, of some kind of a congregational vote. These are people that hear what God says and they convey what God says. And now, in Exodus chapter 12, we read in verse 21 of Moses calling for the elders of Israel, and he gives instructions about the Passover. And it's assumed that when he gives these instructions to the elders about the Passover, that they're going to go right back to the people and tell them what, these elders come from different parts of the nation, they're going to tell their people what Moses has been told by God. And then moving on into Exodus chapter 18 and verse 12, the elders of Israel, they came with Aaron to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law Jethro. And in that passage, we read how instructions are given concerning the, the leadership of God's people to these elders. And it's likely that the judges, especially judges, were instructions were given about judges. And there is the likelihood that the judges were then chosen from among these elders. And then when we come to chapter 19... And verse 7, and you'll notice we just have rewritten a lot of these texts there in in your sheets that have been handed out, and that's why we're not reading from each one of these texts. We have them there to look up later on. But in Exodus 19, 7, when the Lord was about to give the law on Mount Sinai, he spoke to Moses. And Moses, in turn, what did he do? He gathered the elders of Israel, and he laid before them the words that God had commanded him. And again, there's this idea. They receive the word, and they are to take it back to the people. And then coming to the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites murmur about the manna. They're tired of having the same thing every day. And they want meat. They want the vegetables of Egypt. And Moses cries out to the Lord. He says in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 14. And maybe I'll just take the time to turn there. Um, Numbers eleven, fourteen. He says to the Lord, I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Can't, they're wearing them down with all their complaints. And then we read in verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. And then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them, and they will bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. And so here we read that these seventy are officers over the people. There is the idea of they have authority, they've got they have rulership in, in Israel. And the Spirit rests upon them, verses 24 and 25. They begin to speak the word of God. So again, we see this picture of their rulers and they're those that communicate the truth. They're spokesmen for the word of God. And then coming to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 1, when the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan, they're about to enter the land of promise. We read that Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep all the commandments which I command you this day. Again, you see this. They are with Moses in giving this command to the people. They are spokesmen for God in that sense. They are teachers to pass on the commandments of the Lord. And they also act as judges. We read in Deuteronomy 19.12 that the elders of the city are to hand over the avenger, the murderer to the avenger of blood. They, they make a judgment in this case that he's guilty of murder, and therefore he is to be dealt with. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21, the rebellious son is to be brought before the elders of the city for judgment. And they make a judgment as to, what's to what kind of punishment is to be given to that rebellious son. And in repeatedly in the Old Testament, there is a place of judgment in the city. And often it's the gates of the city. And the elders sit in the gates. They sit in the gates to render judgment. They have authority, they have rule, and they communicate truth. And you can read of that in Deuteronomy 25, 7 and Proverbs 31, 23. And this which took place in early the history of Israel continued even after the exile and during the exile when they returned back to uh, the land of Palestine. These elders are to take the lead in building the temple. And so we read in Ezra chapter 6, verse 7, that the uh, decree is sent out by King Darius. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Together with the governor, which is a ruling officer, These elders, which are ruling officers, are to build this house of God. Verse 14, so the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. And in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra is called a scribe in verse 6. In verse 10, he is said to have prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And in Nehemiah 8, we read again of Ezra that he reads the law. And there are others that then will take that law and break it down and speak it to all the various people, the parts of Israel, and they will put it in their own language. And this is probably the elders in that case that carried out this work. And all of this provided the seeds for what developed later on and what was synagogue worship. Elders governed, and they were ones that, they were the ones that were considered the governors in the synagogues. They had to be trained in the law, and among these who were elders in the synagogue would be one who would usually be called the president, who would be the main teacher, and he would often be called a scribe in the synagogue. And together with the other elders, they ruled in the synagogue. And there were two main functions of the elders in the synagogue. They were to be teachers and they were to be rulers. Again, these same functions, they come out even in the synagogue. They were to order the worship, they were to discipline the members, they had the authority to cast people out of the synagogue, excommunication. They managed the finances, they managed the care of the poor. And where the community was entirely Jewish, the elders of the town would be the elders of the synagogue. They were often the same. And because of their knowledge of scripture, they were to be known as being wise men. Their worried carried weight because they were elders who were wise. Now, the eminent writers on Jewish antiquities, they disagree with respect to whether or not there was a difference of rank among the elders in the synagogue. And I won't go into quoting all of them different opinions. But they agree in that In every synagogue, there was a bench of elders consisting of at least three men. This was the minimum required in every city that there would be three elders who were then charged with the government and discipline of the synagogue. And such Jewish writers as Philo, Josephus, Maimonides, and Benjamin of Tudela, they are all agreed on this point. And in a marvelous way, the synagogue system had prepared for the worship in the government of the New Testament church. Whereas the at the temple, it was priests and sacrifices that were central. In the synagogue, there was a different focus. There wasn't a sacrifice that was performed. There weren't priests in the synagogue. Instead, the central, port, the central focus of synagogue worship was the edification of the heart by the opening up of scripture. And there would be prayer. And so there was instruction that was given in the synagogue. When we come now to the New Testament, we come to the beginning with the gospel, beginning with the gospel accounts. Consistently, there is the assumption of the existence of these synagogues. And there's the assumption of the existence of elders and rulers. And sometimes the words are interchangeable in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 22 one of the rulers, he's called a ruler in the synagogue, Jairus by name, he came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he begged for the healing of his uh, servant. And after the New Testament church had been instituted, in James chapter 2, which is one of the earliest books that are written in the New Testament, James chapter 2 and verse 2, we read, "If if there should come into your assembly... And the word that's translated assembly in many of our English versions is the word "synagogue," which is the word, the Greek word for synagogue. If a man comes into your synagogue with a gold ring, you're not to treat him special, and you know those instructions that are given in James chapter 2. And yet James instructs the sick to call for the elders of the church. So these are the elders that come into the synagogue he calls it a synagogue there, and then in the same book, he calls it a church. And so you see there's a sliding from the synagogue worship to church worship and the idea of a New Testament church. And in a remarkable way, the eldership of the synagogue prepared for the eldership of the church. And this is why we don't have an account of how elders got started in the church. We do have an account of how the deacons got started in their office in the church in Acts chapter 6, but there's no such account in the book of Acts because elders existed for centuries already. There wasn't something, wasn't something new that needed to be introduced to the history of the church. Now, the first place, again, when we come now to the book of Acts, the first place that Paul went with the gospel was always to the synagogue. And one of the first places that Paul and Barnabas went with the gospel was Antioch and Pisidia. And as they entered into the city, right away, what do they do? They go right to the synagogue. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, we read, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, translate the elders of the synagogue, sent unto them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, speak. The Baptist theologian, Pastor John Gill, was a master of Oriental, especially rabbinical learning, He observes that typically there was a group of elders, one of which was the primary ruler or spokesperson. But as a body of elders, they were all called rulers in the synagogue. They all ruled, but typically one of them would be the presiding ruler. But even though one man presided over their official meetings, they were all recognized as having the same authority. And in the synagogue, the elders, they sat together in the front of the synagogue in a semicircular bench facing the people, and the president of the elders, he would be the one that would be sitting in the center of that semicircle of benches or seats. And although their number varied depending on the size of the synagogue, even the smallest synagogues had at least three elders now the earliest churches were made up of Jewish believers that worshiped in synagogues. And when an elder in a synagogue was converted, it, it was, he was usually readily recognized in the church as being somebody that would be mature, that would be a leader in the church. And so in Acts chapter 18 and verse eight, we read that at Corinth Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue believed. And although it's not specifically said, It's likely that he was soon recognized as an elder in the church there at Corinth. Now, all of this is very significant. It's highly significant that the structure of the early churches was patterned after the synagogue, not the temple. We never read of the leaders of the early church being recognized as priests after the model of the temple. Priests are go-betweens mediators between God and man. They offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And none of that takes place in the early church. The lowliest member of the church is just as much of a priest as the chief spokesperson of that church. There's no special priesthood because there's only one special priest in the church, and it's Jesus. He's our great high priest. There's no altar at which the priest offers sacrifices. That's why we don't have a sacrificial altar in the middle of this church where we have the sacrifice of the mass. All of this has been done once for all by Christ. And so we don't have priests. We don't have a temple here. And as we examine the structure of the church in the apostolic times, if we compare the titles and the powers and the duties and the ordination of the offices of the New Testament church, again and again, we see a remarkable resemblance between the early church and the New Testament church Not that of the temple, but rather that of the synagogue. And like the New Testament church, the synagogues, they had a body of leaders called elders, as well as a provision for the care of poor, which transitioned into the office of deacon in the New Testament church. And not only is there a striking resemblance between the office bearers of the synagogue and the office bearers of the church but also between the worship of the synagogue and the worship of the church. It was word-oriented, instruction-oriented, as it is in the church. Now, the first explicit reference to the office of elder in the New Testament is Acts chapter 11 and verse 30. And there was a great famine. Benevolence funds were sent to the elders in Judea. And that's where we have the mention. In Acts 11:29. 29... We read, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, where the famine is. And then verse 30, This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. But those that are called elders, they're not deacons. We might think, well, these were deacons, because the deacons take care of of the poor, they take care of the finances, and so forth. But they are elders, because in They're they're pastors because in Acts chapter 20, and verse 17 and verse 28, these very elders are told to shepherd the flock. It's elders and deacons, and and elders and, and pastors, those are synonymous terms, interchangeable terms to describe the same people. It's not the deacons that shepherd the flock. It's not the deacons that rule the flock. It's the elders that Paul gathered together there in Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 20. In Acts 14.23, we read that the early missionaries, they ordained elders in every church, which indicates the presence of elders ruling and teaching in the church. This is not an optional model. This is what was to be done in all the churches. And this is the pattern established by Christ to this day. And while genuine churches for a time might be without an elder or without a plurality of elders, the norm is a plurality of elders in every church. Now, perhaps it would be helpful to turn to a very key text, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 17. In this place, there seems to be the chief notion associated with the elder, and that is that he is a ruler in the church. And we see it plainly stated in this text where we read in, that, in 1 Timothy five seventeen, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, we don't know, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether the double honor is respect or whether it's financial support. There's difference of opinions on that. That's not important for us right right now. What you need to notice, what we need to notice, is that they rule, and there are certain (coughs) ones of them that deserve special either remuneration or respect, because they rule well. And then among these, there are some especially that should receive this kind of response because they labor in their word and doctrine. There are those that among the elders, they make their living. This is their labor. They are full-time elders in the word and doctrine. Now, I gave you a little warning. What does this mean about the kind of man that should fulfill this role? I'm not seeing any hands yet. Come on. What are we looking for? If if this is the whole picture that's given as we study the Bible. Yes, Chris. That he has to have leadership qualities. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, he's the kind of person that people would follow. That's. That's somebody that has leadership qualities. And, uh, of course, those will be various qualities for leadership. Somebody that uh, is not always cowering in the corner, but somebody that takes the bull by the horns when something needs to be done, takes leadership. Yes, Tony. Okay. The whole idea of elders conveys the idea that these are men of gravity, and of, of of the the respected people in the congregation. Yes. Absolutely essential. Yes, uh, Leo. They have to be committed to the work. Okay. And there must not be those that that just are part-timers, so to speak, even though they may not labor in the word and doctrine, they're committed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mike. the best case of course is the chief elder our lord and savior jesus christ led by example and of course paul he said be followers of me as i'm a follower of christ so that's very important yes Uh, yes paul To to be a compassionate man okay so uh Somebody that would be back in Israel, that would be a judge. Somebody that would be a teacher. You can't be somebody that's hard-nosed, or you wouldn't go to him, would you? Yes, John. Um, like Tony said, somebody who has wisdom and along with that good judgment, um, okay. Balanced, yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Again and again, this comes through that these elders, they took the word and they relayed it to the people. They have to understand what that word means. And they have to be men of good judgment. Yes. And he, yes, Bob. It's kind of well. and one of the you move this household Yes. Yeah, yeah the, Paul plainly says if he doesn't know how to rule his house, which is comparatively small, what about the bigger house, house of God, church? There needs to be proven ability in some way to rule well. Uh, yes, Mike? Elders. Elders need to be good listeners. Of course, that you have to weigh. I mean, sometimes people can be an elder and they can kowtow to bad advice. They can just fall, buckle under the pressure that they need to stand against. But by and large, the book of Proverbs speaks about wisdom coming with listening and not just speaking. He that holds his peace, his peace is counted wise. I'm kind of paraphrasing. It's found there in the book of Proverbs the other ideas that okay, well let me before we move on here, let me just obviously just bend the nail over that there needs to be uh... oh yes, yes, I didn't see, I'm sorry I didn't see your hand. Thank you, no, I found it right here on um, Timothy. he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, then separate sober-minded of good behavior, of hospitable able to teach. And then I went down to um, 8, this is 98, of the of a deacon. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, but holding the mystery of the faith, which is the pure conscience. Yeah, so all, all of this picture we've been studying in the Old and New Testament about elders, Paul boils it all down here to the characteristics of the kind of person that uh, would be a suitable elder, suitable uh, leader in the church. Yeah, amen. And we're going to get to examining those things in a little more detail down the road. But uh, let me just, to summarize what we've been seeing so far, obviously there needs to be a man that's eminent in maturity, he needs to be a person that's a wise person. He's well-versed in scripture. And uh, I don't think that this means that he has a perfect record, that he never exercises poor judgment. You remember how Peter exercised poor judgment and Paul had to correct Peter in Galatians chapter 2. And part of wisdom is, like Mike brought up, recognizing when you made a mistake and you're willing to be corrected. And there have been times when I thank God for my fellow elder that corrects me. And uh, there are also times when there are legitimate disagreements. There are two opinions. They can be sharply divided. And which is the course of wisdom? Barnabas and Paul, they disagree over whether to take John Mark and give him a second chance on another journey. And also, so, but, but, you know, so, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that by, by and large there needs to be a manifestation of, of uh, good judgment and of wisdom. And uh, then it also, I think it's important that he's a man that can, the solemn charge of ruling in the house of God can be given. And the obedience to God, he's going to have to make some tough choices. That, that, that's part of being a ruler. You know, most of us as elders, we don't, we, we don't actually like the idea that we're rulers. It's just because it, when you're a ruler, you've got to make the hard decisions. It's just easier in these churches where they vote on everything and say, okay, you could could take the fall, you see if this is a bad decision, because you all voted on it. But uh, as elders, they have to be willing to make uh, decisions, sometimes hard, unpopular decisions. And in many ways, the task of an elder is like the justice of peace in the civil realm. And he makes difficult decisions, and he has to rule from the bench, but also he has duties to correct abuses in the community, put a stop to fraud, arrest to punish criminals. We're not talking about criminals in the church. But there's still difficult things that that man has to exercise and do. And elders likewise, they have been given the unpopular job of making sure that the laws of the head of the church are not being flouted. They have to do this without physical coercion. An elder doesn't have handcuffs, he doesn't have jail cells to constrain people troublemakers, he must use the word of God, that's his tool and the spiritual means that God has given for maintaining order in the house and an elder has been entrusted with authority of the church but he never has the right to speak and act in his own name it's a delegated authority he acts in behalf of God and again he doesn't act in behalf of the people, this is not a democracy, this is a monarchy of the church, Jesus is the head of the church not man. And uh, the, the elder just passes on what Jesus has said. And so the sermons of the elder, they must represent what the Lord, the head of the church, wants him to say. It's not what he thinks people want him to say, it's what the Lord wants him to say. So he needs to be a man that's going to be of character, that's willing to do, do the hard things in the church of God. He needs to be a humble man. He needs to know his place. He doesn't have his own agenda. He receives the word. He's just the agent to pass it on to the people. And he's willing to be corrected. He needs to be also a spirit-filled man. The spirit rested on the seventy elders. In the New Testament, seventy were set out, upon whom the Spirit also rested. So this is the first picture. And I want to just now just get our feet wet here a little bit in the next picture. I was hoping to get all the way through the second picture here, but the second picture we want to look at is that of overseers over a workforce. And here, turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here we have this passage that gives us the qualifications that we just mentioned a moment ago. In 1, Peter 3, or 1, 1 Timothy 3 Verse 1, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, etc. And the word that's translated bishop in the King James, and the New King James, which I've just read from, is the word for overseer. It's the word episkopos. And the verb form is Episcopal, to look upon, to oversee, and to inspect, to examine, to investigate, to search. That's the picture of an overseer. In Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, we are to pursue peace with all men in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. There's the picture of diligent inspection, diligently looking over the situation. It's a picture of intense watchfulness. And all the members of the Christian society are to be estuary Episcopuses, They were to all be watchers for each other's souls. But especially this is to be the duty of the elder. And this is also related to the verbal form to visit. Um, to inspect to, to oversee is sometimes referred to as visiting. And this is not for selfish ends, but rather out of genuine concern out of concern to care for, for God's people. Um, we had some members years ago that, in their I think it was maybe the membership interview, they said, well, we heard that Reformed Baptists, the, the pastors, they come and inspect your cupboards. And, and it, let me assure you, we don't come to your houses to inspect cupboards. And this is a gross caricature of the fact that, that as pastors, we want, we want to know where we can help, where we can minister. We want to watch out. We're concerned about what's going on, not about what's in your cupboards, but about what's in your hearts. And we're all to be doing this with each other, and especially the elders are called to be overseers in this way. And in Acts 7.23, read of Moses, that had been brought up in the house of Egypt, a royal house, he wanted to go and visit his brethren. He sought them out because he belonged to them, he felt responsible for them, and so this overseeing is connected with visiting to be able to check things out. And in secular use, the overseer was used in various contexts. In the city of Athens, overseers were supervisors sent by the Athenians to various cities to make sure the public order was maintained. The term was used in connection with a workforce. Like the foreman, he oversees, you see, a building project. Another instance we find in early society is the overseers over the Ephesian mint, the minted money. Also an overseer of the goods of the captain of a ship, he would be an overseer, or the master of a house. Um, And so there's not just one picture, but overall it's the picture of a man that has his eyes wide open. He watches over those that are under his charge, He's the picture of, It's a picture of one that presides over the church, and he can't be oblivious to what's going on. Hebrews 12, he's one who looks carefully, looks diligently, is the idea that is conveyed. And you combine this with a picture of a shepherd. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Holy Spirit made you overseers, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, and he urges them to pastor God's people, to shepherd them. And in that context, he calls them overseers. And the work of overseers is it inextricably bound up with the work of a shepherd. Take heed to all the flock. Know what's going on with reference to the flock. Look them over carefully. Are there little wounds that they've got scratched up as they've been going along the way? Is there one of those little lambs there that's got a broken leg? Look them over carefully. Watch over them. Look for the weak ones that need attention. Look for those that are about to stray, those that are diseased, etc. And all this is combined with the picture of a steward. And we're going to get to the picture of a steward in our next uh, lesson. But we read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, of a bishop or overseer, he must be blameless as a steward of God. And the steward, he was an overseer. Essentially, he was giving oversight in a house. The household steward, he must oversee all that goes on to make sure that everything's done the way the master wants it to be done. He needs to be aware of what's going on. The supplies, are they running down? Are the tasks being accomplished? Is everything in repair? He carefully inspects everything. He needs to attend to the cases that are are before him. In the same way, the pastor, he is to be an overseer. He's to be anxious about the spiritual state of God's people their eternal salvation, you see, is involved. He needs to warn those that are trifling with their never-dying souls. He must warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. The same picture in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. Uh, Paul says, if a man desires the position of an overseer, he desires a good work. And the setting, again, is the household of God. Verse 15, he goes on to say, the church is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And Paul writes these things to Timothy that he might know how to conduct himself in the house of God. It's a great house. It's a great house that needs supervisors, needs overseers, that superintend. This house, dear people, is the greatest house of all. And it's not just any house. It's not even just a king's house. This is the house of the king of kings. This is the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, overseeing the work in that house and the people in that house is a great task. And so Paul says in First Timothy, one who rules his own house well is the one that's qualified to be the ruler in this great house. If you can't superintend your little house, how will you ever do it in the house of God? It's a picture of the person again that rules. He's all over the house. And those in the house, they don't re- they don't respond as peers. His children don't say, well, I, I, I don't know if I like your idea. "Father, well, Dad, I, I have a different idea. No, that's not the way they're to respond. But they see, you see, the one that's the overseer in the house is someone that has authority in the house. And yet this authority is delegated. He rules on behalf of his master. He doesn't make up the rules as he goes along. He executes God's word. And he has a solemn accountability to the God that gave him that authority. As the 16th century Italian-English churchman and historian Virgil put it, he noted that the bishop is a title that intimates more of labor than of honor. Now again, I wanted to ask for input here as to what this, I think this will take us too long for me to do that again, but just just to bend the nail over a little bit on what this means. It means that if he is an overseer, he cares for the welfare of God's people. To be bishop is not to be set up as an idol for people to bow down to. It's not to be a slow-belly, slothful person. It's not to live for your fleshly comfort. Oh, this is a good way to make money. It's not, but it's to be one that watches over the souls of God's people. That's serious business. And there's a serious seriousness, therefore, that's required. He needs to not occupy his time with idle talk. He needs to not be known first and foremost to be a funny guy that has amazing jokes. He is not the kind of guy that just loiters around and just doesn't care what happens. He is the most solemn of all responsibilities. And as we look for such a man, we have to ask, does this man pander to himself or does he care for the eternal well-being of the souls that have been entrusted to his care? An overseer needs to be observant. He needs to be spiritually sensitive. The property under his care is not brick and stone that men with immortal souls, purchased by the blood of Christ, living stones renewed by the Spirit. And the activities of this house, they're not just cooking and washing dishes and sweeping the floor. They're worshiping the true and the living God. They're upholding the truth of God in the world. And the work in this house is so solemn. The angels are present looking on. They attend as ministering spirits in this house. And the house in which the, the, the overseer ministers He's ministering in the place where the little ones are gazing upon, you see, the attending ministers of the spirits of God above. It's a house in which the little ones behold even the face of God in heaven. It's a house that endures forever. How great is this house. How wondrous is this house. And how grievous, therefore, it would be to neglect the souls of people in this house. And how great is the care of those that will live forever with God in glory or else shut out from God forever and ever. And so are not the souls of those that see God's face forever, worthy of the utmost careful, anxious care? Shall not the overseer, shall he, shall he think so little of the house of God that he does it in a sloppy way, that he just takes, takes as much time off as he wants? He's careless, he's haphazard, he's slovenly. no. A while back, I spoke with my dear friend in Nebraska. referred refer to him once in a while. A man that, that I have often felt his godliness far surpasses my own. I remember him telling me about his bull escaping from his field. And he, for days, looked in his pastures to find the bull. And a bull is important, by the way, if you're a farmer. You don't get anywhere without a bull. And he looked at his neighbor's field. He advertised even to find his bull. And when he found it, he had broken a leg. It, it, bulls are kind of ornery sometimes, and obviously this bull had picked a fight. So how is it that a farmer does all of this to find a bull? And the overseers of souls who care for the members of God's house would do, do it carelessly. It wouldn't, wouldn't really matter to them. Just kind of just take it or leave it. It can't be. If you care for an animal that are your property, how much more? God's property. If we care for a lowly beast, how much of souls it will spend eternity in heaven or hell. Well, I know that there are certain things that, that we preach that are hard to preach, you know, hard to hear. Um, you know, you know if, a, if, a, if a pastor wants to make everybody feel guilty, just preach a sermon about prayer. We all feel our, we're terrible at our prayer life. We all feel guilty when we hear a sermon about prayer. In the same way, by the way, and here I want you to be realistic, and I want to just put in this word of caution at the end. As, as elders, as pastors, I have a hard time preaching this because I feel like, man, I've got so far to go here. I have so much that I need to grow in, so much that, that I need to improve in, that, um, that you know, it's, it's, a, it's arrows to my own heart. And so we need to be realistic, and yet at the same time, we need to pray that God would raise up overseers that really care for God's people. They provide the food. They watch. They admonish. They correct. And don't resent it when the elders care for you, when they ask you questions. You're missing for a few Sundays. What happened here? Maybe you've you've been sick. You need to know about it. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe it's a spiritual issue. So don't resent it when we try to look into your lives. We're not trying to figure out a way to look in your cupboards. We're looking to find how we might be helpers in overseeing you for your well-being, for the eternal well-being of your soul. Well, um, we're going to have to stop here and tackle, tackle the, the next picture next time, and hopefully some more. And this is a very important picture, the picture of the stewards over God's household. Well, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given us these word pictures in the new testament and even in the old as to what you have for leaders in your church and pray lord that that which we see in your word would be realized in the midst of your people in this place give us understanding of your will in this matter help us who are the elders to exercise with maturity the leadership of god's people help us as overseers to watch carefully for the souls of those you've entrusted to our care and raise up future leaders that would be just these very things. And give us wisdom as we examine this man and other men that God would bring our way at years to come. May we know your will in this utterly solemn matter in the church of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.